Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you clean up your mind and life. In this podcast, I talk with psychologist and best-selling author Tyus Gibson on attachment theory, how knowing your attachment style can help improve any type of relationship and how to find your attachment style. We also discuss the difference between the non-conscious, subconscious and conscious mind. If you enjoy listening to my podcast, I want to ask you to do me a big favor right now. Please subscribe wherever you listen and leave a five-star review. And please keep sharing episodes with friends and family on social media. I love seeing your posts and how each episode is helping you. Now, on to today's episode. Thais, so excited to interview you today. This is going to be a wonderful and important conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, you've got such an interesting, beautiful name. And just before we started, you were sharing with me what it means and how you got this name. So I just think that's such a lovely thing. Just share that with the audience because it's it's, a, it's an unusual name. I've never heard it before. And Thais, it's beautiful and it's got a lot of meaning. What does tell us about the name? So it actually means love. And I was named after an opera called Meditation to Thais by Jules Massenet. My parents went on a date one day and saw that. And then years later, that became my name. I love it. That's beautiful. And you do meditate. So it's very applicable in your life. <laughs> you were saying. Very much. So you do your name. You do your name justice as well. That's amazing. Well, can you just tell my listeners a little bit more about yourself before we dive into today's topic, which is going to be a lot around attachment theory and attachment styles and so on. Just tell us a little bit about yourself that's not in your bio and what motivates you and what keeps you excited. Yeah. So, I mean, all this work is super, super close to my heart. Part of sort of my entry point into this is that I struggled with addiction. I got addicted to painkillers after a Mm. knee surgery. I was an athlete trying to go to a D1 school Mm. for soccer and really struggled with addiction in my early, early years. And then it was sort of a scary thing for me where it was like, I was having my first set of withdrawals and I didn't even know what withdrawals were. And I had remembered, this was a really pivotal moment for me. I remember going, I was in a rehab center and a woman said to me, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And I remember thinking, Mm. "Hmm, well, my genetics are all four of my grandparents had struggled with alcoholism and they say it skips a generation. And in my early childhood, I had a whole bunch of of traumas and and big challenges take place. And I remember thinking, I think I was 19 at the time Mm. or 18. And I remember thinking, I can't accept that. Like I cannot accept that I'm just the product of my genetics and environment. Mm. And I was always in this war with myself. And soon after 
probably by the grace of God, I, I had somebody come into my life who was like a a spiritual sort of mentor to me, but also knew a lot about the subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And I realized through some of the information I was receiving that, oh my goodness, the subconscious mind versus the conscious mind. This is the war I experience in myself every day when I go, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stop. And then my subconscious has ulterior motives and keeps pulling me back into the same direction. And so as I learned about that, I was like, I sort of became addicted to learning at that point and went back to school, did, did the master's degree in transpersonal psychology and all these different certifications to really understand like the, the gap between like, not just yeah. the subconscious and, and conscious mind, but like spirituality, psychology, science, all these different things and trying to put the pieces together. And it was such a powerful, beautiful journey for myself that that was like, okay, this is going to be my my life's work, hopefully. And and so ran a really busy practice for the better part of a decade, spent a lot of time working to one, one-to-one with people, and then went on to do an online version of all of that through the personal development school. And all of this work is very much like a, a part of my heart and being. Oh, that's beautiful. What a, what a wonderful journey. So you've gone from the experience to the process of actually helping to transform your experience into helping others, which is really what it is, which is the, so much the human experience. We go through stuff and then we learn the lessons from that stuff and then we help others with our lessons. And you've done that with your career, which is fantastic. And we have a very similar interest. I've spent uh, 38 years now in this whole mind brain stuff and I developed a theory of mind years is literally 35 five years ago as I just three years into my research and since then I've spent all these years studying that and t- talking about the non-conscious mind and the con- which no one speaks about I don't know if you thought so that in your training very few people speak the non-conscious and the subconscious and the conscious and the difference between them so it's going to be a fun conversation today to talk around these different aspects and things so that's that's so fascinating so you're the founder as you said of the personal development school and can you just talk briefly about this and how this can help someone Yeah, absolutely. So I I had a point in my practice where I was seeing a lot of people and I probably had a little boundary work to do as a person. I kept feeling like, oh, if somebody needs help and and I'll try to make time. And I realized like, wow, I'm giving a lot of my energy every week and I was getting out of balance in the different areas. So I decided, okay, well, we'll put programs online for people. And right away, like a lot of people got really interested in in their relationship challenges and problems. Mm. And so one of the really powerful realizations for myself is that like these same patterns that help me to overcome addiction and sort of the dynamics of the subconscious and the unconscious mind, these are are sort of spilling right over into every other area of our lives. Mm. And, And so I started learning about attachment theory. And what I realized that was really interesting is attachment theory had these same patterns that I had been previously working on with people. People had the same types of expectations amongst certain attachment styles or types. Mm -hmm. They had the same needs that were really profound that they hungered for in relationships. They tended to have the same core wounds, like belief patterns about themselves. Things like I am not worthy of love versus I will be trapped in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And these same like fears started to manifest. And they even had the same emotional patterns I noticed. So for example, Mm -hmm. like dismissive avoidance tend to experience more irritation, agitation, frustration versus, you know, a fearful avoidant or an anxious preoccupied tend to have more fears around abandonment, fears around being alone, these things. So I I was able to sort of recognize these same types of patterns. And out of that, we created integrated attachment theory, which is basically a system of like developing or defining what your attachment style is, but then recognizing all these subconscious patterns that sort of coalesce with that. Mm -hmm. And that really hit home with a lot of people. And so the school is based on 
helping people identify those types and patterns through their attachment style, but then having specific tailored programs and workbooks to reprogram subconscious pain points. We have over 30 different courses and over a hundred different live webinars that, that I do every week. So those have accumulated over time. And, and it's just a space where people can come in, work through any patterns or challenges in any of the seven areas of life, understand what patterns exist within them, and then have tools for, for reprogramming their subconscious and breaking through some of these barriers. Mm, amazing. That's incredible. Well, can you talk about the different attachment styles? Because it's thrown out there a lot. As you know, social media has become a platform of, of, of help. I mean, especially in this COVID time, it's transformed into a place where people can get the most amazing help and everyone's putting out great content there. And the word attachment theory is thrown or attachment styles is thrown around. But I don't think people totally understand. So they get the idea, but I think it's nice to have a clear understanding of it. So if you wouldn't mind explaining, you know, what is it, define it, and then what are the different types? And then maybe just walk us through a couple of those, as you say, identify, hard to identify, which, you know, the, the integration, and then maybe a couple of ideas on techniques so people can, and then they can go to your courses, obviously, to get more in-depth understanding and application. So is that is that good? The way I like to describe attachment theory or the analogy I like to use is that we all have a different set of ways we've learned to relate late. And they're sort of like the rules that we live by in terms of interpersonal relationships. And I like to compare having different attachment styles to like playing a board game with a different Mm. set of rules. And if you, if two people are playing a board game with a different rule set, it's going to be really challenging and there's going to be a lot of frustration. And so we all have different ways that we learn how to relate to one another in our early lives. And our original attachment style develops roughly between the ages of zero to two. But because the mind is plastic, things can change and be reprogrammed. We can program out what's been programmed in and transform our attachment style. But also we can start off as one attachment style. And then maybe because of a tumultuous relationship later in life, our attachment style can shift to something insecure. Or because I just because of- sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you there. I just want to hone in quickly and underline, undergird the concept of neuroplasticity there, and just remind uh, my audience is very familiar with it. Neuro means brain, plastic means to change, and we're talking here about changing the brain, and that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. But with your mind, you change your brain. And that quickly before you carry on, it reminds me of something that you said earlier as you first started talking. You said that you were told that you had the loaded gun. You know, four four generations of parents that were battling with addictions, and then you had trauma in your childhood. So you had the the nature and the nurture, but you said something else that we didn't hone in on. And the reason why I want to hone in on it now, because I think it's got a lot to do with attachment theory. And that was, I call it the I factor. I don't know what you call it, but it's something I've researched for years as well. So it's not just nature, nurture. That debate is not the only thing. The, the What overrides all of that is you as a human, your ability to think, feel, and choose, the I factor. And you said that you, you chose to, you realized that you weren't controlled by nature, nurture. There was another factor, which was you. And I don't know what you call it, but as I said, I call it the I factor, which is basically the mind, which is our ability to think and feel and choose. And that's what got you into your journey of healing. And in your and part of your journey of healing was getting knowledge about this. So now you're using that to overcome and help other people overcome. So the I factor overrode nature nurture. And I wanted to emphasize that because it's very, very hopeful. And it's also what I found in my research. So I just wanted to say that because I love how you put that forward and how that kind of links into how you approach attachment theory. I love it. I get so excited talking about this stuff. So actually the, the way I sort of framed it in my mind at the time was genetics holds the gun and your perception of the environment pulls mm-hmm. the trigger. And that mm-hmm. perception is sort of like the filter you see reality through yeah. based on all of your imprinted Nurturing. experiences. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so when you can see that, 
and isolate it, you can change it through repetition and emotion and all these different, like really powerful reprogramming practices. So, so the different attachment styles, so the different attachment styles, basically there's one secure attachment style and three insecure attachment styles. And again, just like you said, this is all the result of programmed experiences, things that happen to us. They're not like nature. These are nurtured. And so we come into the world, we have these different ways that our parents learn to relate. And the three insecure attachment styles, which are the ones with more sort of trauma, are dismissive avoidant, fearful avoidant. Fearful avoidant is also sometimes called anxious avoidant or disorganized attachment style and anxious preoccupied. And then we have our securely attached individual, which is where we're all trying to get to essentially Mm -hmm. if we are not there already. And basically the secure individual as they're growing up, they get a certain few factors in their relationship to their caregivers that make them secure. And these are when they cry or express emotion, they have approach-oriented strategies between the caregiver and child, they learn as a result of this that their feelings are safe, that they're Mm. worthy of being expressed. They learn that when they do express feelings, their needs get met. And so these really fundamental components of the relationship they learn to have to themselves is my feelings are okay. Mm. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's safe to trust. Mm. Consistency and safety are a natural part of interpersonal relationships. And on top of that, it's okay to express my needs. And so you can imagine the level of worthiness that person feels in their adult Mm -hmm. lives or even in their early childhood, how they bond more easily to their peers as they go through grade school, high school, all these different like really important rites of passage of life. And you can see how that person would show up in a romantic relationship in a certain way as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have our insecure relationships. And the first one is, is dismissive avoidant attachment style. And so this is the most avoidant of the avoidant side. It's this extreme one. Yes, exactly. And it's characterized by basically emotional neglect in some form. And the really interesting component about this is that sometimes it can really fly under the radar because a dismissive avoidant might have two parents who are very physically available, you know, help with chores, cook, clean, make sure everything's organized in the household. But if they are dismissive avoidance themselves or they're out of relationship to their own emotions and they're not having active conversations about emotions, hey, how are you feeling? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. If they're not attuning because they don't have that ability within them, then that still creates emotional neglect. And -hmm. in the words of Dr. Gaber Mate, I love this, this quote. He says, trauma is something that happened that shouldn't have happened, like Mm -hmm. verbal or physical abuse, for example, or things that didn't happen that should have happened, Mm, like emotional nurturing and care. And so it really constitutes as a trauma and dismissal avoidance go on in relationships in their adult lives to fear Mm. vulnerability, fear expressing their emotions because all of their stored subconscious associations to expression of emotion are basically more negative than positive. And they fear like vulnerability, connection, trust, all these different major components of what it means to connect. And so the manifestation of this in somebody's adult romantic life is usually something along the lines of, I'm afraid to commit. Mm. I don't want to settle down. You know, I might get close to you when, when we're in the dating stages of a relationship, but then I'm going to hightail out of there when there's mm. too much vulnerability required. And this can be really confusing for somebody like the anxious preoccupied who's at the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, if we look at this individual, this individual's childhood or early caregiver experiences are usually characterized by inconsistency. So Mm -hmm. basically, if they have a parent or caregiver who both can be warm and loving, but then maybe both work a lot. So they build in these positive associations to the subconscious and unconscious mind that say, 
oh, connection feels great, but I'm afraid of losing it all the time. You know, Mm. my parents are here and then they're gone. Or this can also be somebody who has one really warm caregiver and one cold caregiver. And that inconsistency between the two creates this imprinting. And and we know the subconscious is programmed through repetition plus emotion. And so that, that imprinting over time of having that availability and then the withdrawing can create a lot of the dynamic of push pull and it creates a major fear of abandonment. And the Mm. core wounds for this individual are things like fear of abandonment, fear of being left alone, fear of being unsafe when they're alone, fear of feeling disconnected, rejected, or not good enough. And so this individual, of course, often ends up in in relationships with the dismissive avoidant. And because the reason is is that they often mirror each other in terms of their internal relationship to self. So for example, the anxious person is often dismissing themselves in favor of external focus and trying to derive their needs from the outside in. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the subconscious comfort zone of familiarity for what they're attracted to. So they're often attracted to the dismissive avoidant who's dismissing them the way they're dismissing the relationship to self. Mm -hmm. And so they often get into these uh, sort of pair bonds, but it's sort of like a trauma bond to a certain degree. And they really push each other's wounds because the dismissive is always trying to pull away and the anxious is always trying to come towards, but the dismissive feels like, oh my gosh, I need that space. And, and that re-triggers the the fear of abandonment and whatnot for, for the anxious preoccupied. So those are the two like polarities after the Mm -hmm. secure. This episode is made possible by my absolute favorite meal delivery service, Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well very affordable and has meal plans to fit literally every kind of lifestyle. Meal plans include paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. I am definitely not the greatest cook and it's not my favorite thing to do. So seriously, thank goodness for Green Chef. They make healthier eating so much easier and exciting. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. And for people like me, who always just seem to mess up a recipe, ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly proportioned, and mostly prepped, so there's very little room for error. I recently just made the keto cheesy lemon pepper chicken, and wow, you would think I was a professional trained chef. With Green Chef's wide variety of high-quality, clean ingredients, you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. And you can switch up your meal plan whenever you're ready to try a new way to eat. Is your mouth watering yet? Well, use code DRLEAF80 to get $80 off your first month, plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com forward slash DRLEAF80 to redeem and for more details. That's greenchef.com forward slash drleaf80 and use the code drleaf80 to get $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Just quickly summarize those two very simplistically. You've explained them beautifully, but just quickly give a summary of those two. So the two extremes, because you've, you've gone on the two pole and then you're going to come to the middle one now. So dismissive avoidant is the, the slow to warm up, emotional neglect, sort of cold one. They often fear commitment, vulnerability, deep connection, and they tend to have wounds around feeling unsafe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they battle to connect, yeah. Yes. That's where the dismissive comes in. 
Exactly, exactly. And then the anxious preoccupied tends to have fears of abandonment. They often go in their adult romantic relationships to appear as like the needy or the clingy ones who call repetitively, who keep coming when they're being pushed away, who feel desperate for connection, who don't like being alone, fear being lonely, often experience the pain of loneliness a lot. And so those are sort of the two that's anxious preoccupied is the anxious one. Dismissive avoidance is the one pulling back and dismissing. Mm, so one's coming forward, one's going away, but it's one's coming forward because of, and each one is trying to fill some sort of a hole. Okay, it's really well explained. Okay, so now the middle one. Exactly, exactly. And then we've got our, our fearful avoidant, who's also sometimes referred to as disorganized or, or anxious avoidant. And they're really interesting. They usually tend to have like the most trauma in their background in terms of like emotional volatility. So this attachment style is characterized by somebody who really struggles with trust because usually their their childhood was something of, of the fall following either caregivers who are addicts who are abusive who are fighting all the time basically there was a tremendous amount of volatility and instability in the household Mm -hmm. and so how this child adapts is they don't get a proper attachment strategy so the dismissive avoidant for example learns i'm emotionally neglected I have to self-soothe and pull away and just look out for myself and not open up to people. But at least there's consistency, like expressing emotions feels bad. So I have an adaptation I can make that makes me feel safe. The anxious preoccupied learns, well, I can connect to other people and that feels really good. And I get my needs met through people. So I'm going to hyper-focus there and they still have a cause and effect. But the fearful avoidance tend to learn things like, oh, my caregivers warm sometimes, but sometimes they're drinking or sometimes they're fighting and there's chaos or sometimes they're nice to me. And other times they're taking out their anger mm-hmm. on me because they've got all their own issues. It can also be like a parent with a personality disorder, like, or struggling with extreme depression, mood swings, any kind of like emotional challenges. And so this child learns that, okay, it's not really safe. There's no like cause and effect for how to attach and what to expect. Mm-hmm. So their adaptation to yeah. this or attachment Sorry, that's very interesting. That's very key. There's no real cause and effect, so it keeps it very unpredictable. Whereas your dismissive avoidant has got it's very predictable and your anxious avoidant, it's predictable. One pulling away to self-protect, the other one going to to get the support from people. And the one in the middle, it's completely unpredictable. So the two extremes are predictable, but the middle one is complete. And that comes from all of the big traumas, the consistently big unpredictable traumas. Okay. Exactly. And so their like strategy to find predictability and safety becomes to become hypervigilant. And so the result of this is they learn, okay, I'm going to become an expert at reading body language, micro expressions, tone of voice, shifts in patterns of behavior, and they're constantly on the lookout. But one of the really painful mm. outputs of this, although it can be a superpower in many ways, it becomes the fact that they you you're not in a space of trusting because you're mm. always looking for patterns and incongruencies and trust is largely based on congruency yeah and so this is their adaptation but this gets brought into all of their different relationship dynamics and the fearful avoidant mm-hmm. is often swinging like a pendulum from something called activating strategies which are like these excuses to get closer mm-hmm. to deactivating strategies which are these excuses to push people away and mm-hmm. so they experience as this attachment so a lot of ambivalence it's like oh come here come here and then you get there and it's like no no, no go away go away and there's yes, this it's very confusing for the other person to be able to relate to that yeah 
Yeah, a lot of hot, cold, push, pull, all these different dynamics. And the other wounds that they experience are are that of both the anxious and the dismissive because they share the patterning of both. Mm. They have a lot of, I'm afraid to commit. I will be trapped. I will be stuck. I have shame, a lot of internal shame, which is based on like a defectiveness schema, this belief in I am defective. That's why people treated me like that. So they immediately took it into themselves. It's all their fault. So if someone gets mad at them or angry at them, it's not the person, it's themselves. They see themselves as the wrong one. Exactly, exactly. And so they really personalize that. And so so they have this experience of feeling like I am defective, I am unworthy of love. They feel terrified of making mistakes because, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, what if dad drinks or mom and dad fight? Like there's a lot of fear. So I am bad is a huge core wound. A lot of guilt, easily they experience shame as a result of those core wounds. And then a lot of also fearing abandonment and being alone. So they share the sides of like the shame and unsafety and defectiveness of the dismissal avoidant, but also the fear of abandonment and being alone of the anxious preoccupied combined with distrust wounds. And Mm -hmm. so it's interesting because these people tend to be extremely empathetic, even empathic, like really caring, really loving because they've learned to hyper-focus on other people. Mm, They often love to yeah. The middle one, the middle one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. They often love through this filter of like enmeshment and codependency to a certain degree. So those are the major mm. styles. Just say them again, because there's a lot. I'm just helping people. It's always good to summarize that. So the two poles first and then the middle one. Yeah. So dismissive avoidance are the neglect ones, fear commitment, don't want to be vulnerable. Anxious preoccupied are the ones that fear being alone, abandoned, rejected, and they often feel not good enough and they want more closeness and can be clingy. The fearful ones are the hot, cold ones that are constantly swinging back and forth, constantly like avoidant and then anxious and and sort of hypervigilant and often a little bit distrusting of everybody because they've had to be to adapt and survive. Perfect. Excellent. Very well. So well explained. That's fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so now you're going to give us some sort of behavioral patterns that have come out that come out of each of those. Is that correct? Is that the next thing? And so, so we'll go through sort of the needs that each individual okay. has. And Sounds good. this is another really in- interesting part is, is that we sort of have like the behaviors that we see in the hot, cold, the push, pull, like dismissal avoidance, wanting to pull away, anxious, wanting to come close, fearful avoidance, swinging back and forth. But yeah. And we've touched on a little bit of the core wounds, like anxious, preoccupied, just in summary, tend to feel not good enough, fear of rejection, alone, abandoned, unsafe Mm -hmm. if they are disconnected from anybody. They also tend to have big core wounds around feeling excluded or disliked and are very sensitive to those things. Mm -hmm. And then our dismissive avoidance tend to feel unsafe defective or something's wrong with me as a big wound. And, and really the reason for that too, is that as children, the mind only really knows how to personalize, especially young, young children. Mm-hmm. And so when a caregiver is not emotionally available and a child inherently needs attunement and connection, because one of our only biological fears mm-hmm. is the fear of abandonment. When this takes place, a child can't go, oh, my caregivers are emotionally unavailable. The child can only interpret that as, oh, there must be something wrong with me that these basic needs keep getting rejected. And so they have a lot of shame that they carry as a result of that belief in their defectiveness that's been stored at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And so, and all these things provide like this framework, mm-hmm. like this filter of reality we see and interact with the world through. And so they also tend to have fears of being trapped, stuck, helpless vulnerable, core wounds, all of those different components. Mm -hmm. And fearful wounds have all of that combined, basically, because they have both sides, along with wounds or fears of being broken trust, betrayed, anything like that. So Mm -hmm. a core belief I can't trust. Mm 
And so these are the core wounds along with the styles and then the behavioral patterns you see. And then the other components that are really important to recognize is that each have specific needs for how they see a relationship working. And one of the things that's so interesting is you can take, for example, the fearful avoidant and one of their needs for a relationship is a lot of transparency, a lot of depth of connection Mm -hmm. because those things make that person feel safe, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't trust, but I get somebody really transparent who over explains things, who shares all different details of their life and who connects really deeply okay, I start to feel like I can trust. I know they're not going to drink. I know they're not, you know, whatever wounds we're carrying from childhood Mm -hmm. or fears. Mm -hmm. And so they really want to connect that way. But then we can pair that with a dismissive avoidant who, you know, what they want in a relationship is lightness. They want not vulnerability. They want to feel supported. They want to feel safe. They want to feel that like things are easy, that they flow naturally, that they're simple. Mm. And fearful ones want the complex. They want the in-depth, the transparency. Mm. You can have people who go into relationships with these subconscious expectations, like this is what a good relationship is. But again, they're playing with different rule books and frameworks. Okay. So very quickly, before you go into that, just summarize what you've just said because it's so it's so good but i just don't want people to miss what you've just explained so in terms of the needs going into the relationship so if it's fearful avoidant the middle one that's kind of a mixture of the two so maybe start whichever way is easiest to summarize so the anxious needs in a relationship they want like a lot of love they want to feel wanted they want to feel safe they want to feel consistency of connection right all these things they weren't getting from childhood when they had so many positive associations built in about connection but then had that inconsistency because mom and dad are working a lot or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be so the anxious preoccupied needs for a relationship are a lot of love a lot of time together a Mm -hmm. lot of validation to help equilibrate the the core wounds Mm -hmm. or pain points of not Mm -hmm. good enough rejected right Mm -hmm. so they want all these things then we have the opposed end of the spectrum, which is the dismissive avoidant. And they mm-hmm. want like simplicity. They want safety. They don't want to dive too deep into things. They want to keep like their walls up and really take them down very slowly over time. They really value validation as well, but not too much. They just mm-hmm. want to feel like something's not wrong with them, that they're not defective. Mm-hmm. So they do like receive words of affirmation very well. And then we have fearful avoidance in the, in the middle one. And they really want lots of transparency. They want lots of openness. They want a lot of depth of connection. They want to know all the details of somebody because at a deeper le- level, all of these things are what are sort of like taking away from or helping to balance out or equilibrate the hormone that okay. I can't trust. Exactly. Okay, absolutely brilliant. So now you've got people with one of these three different attachment styles and they meet someone, fall in love, who's got like one of the other attachment styles or you've got a combination or you've got someone who's totally secure and they've got, that's where I assume we know relational issues are going to occur. So then what is the next step in in, term, in terms of relationship? How should this, and that's not just, you know, a husband, wife or a, you know, whatever gender in terms of connection and in a loving, in, in a romantic relationship, but also in a parent-child relationship. So the relational issue now, how does one deal with that and manage that? Yes. So you're, you raise a really important point, which is the fact that different attachment styles, these don't just show up in our romantic relationships. They show up in ourselves as parents. They show up in ourselves with our own parents and with friends, our siblings, with our friendships, exactly with our co-working relationships everywhere. everywhere. And so they're so profound in their impact. And that's why it's so important to recognize these things. So what I'll do is I'll go through the, the three styles and secure, and we'll talk about 
what some core things you can start doing to recognize what's taking. Fantastic. And once you recognize, then you know what to expect in a relationship. Is that is that sort of the philosophy? If you can recognize it, then you can see what you need and you can explain that to the other person. And then the understanding brings the meaningfulness to the and the, the another level to the relationship. Absolutely. And even like some things you can do to reprogram, which will be really beneficial as well. Okay. So, so we know that the subconscious and unconscious mind, at least in the, the sort of lighter versions of the unconscious tend to be really reprogrammed through repetition plus emotion. Like we had these imprints repetitively over time that elicited an emotional response and that's how they imprinted us to create an unhealthy attachment system in the first place. Some of you may remember me talking about Organifi earlier this year and how much my family and I love their products. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high-quality ingredients and less than 3 grams of sugar. As a scientist, I really appreciate how each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses. And with so much going on during the day, I really love how convenient Organifi is. Each superfood blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go. Right now, I am obsessing over the Organifi Gold Superfood Tea. I love having it before bed as the tea has ingredients like turmeric, reishi mushroom and ginger designed to support rest, relaxation, recovery and repair. Or in my coffee as a golden latte. Organifi Gold has mushrooms and herbs aiding in rest and relaxation and is 100% USDA certified organic with less than 1 gram of sugar per cup. And for chocolate lovers like my husband Mac, Organifi Gold comes in a delicious chocolate flavor. Organifi Gold chocolate is a superfood hot chocolate healthy enough to drink every day because it doesn't include blood sugar spiking ingredients like other hot chocolate alternatives, leaving you feeling good about indulging in this healthy chocolate beverage. Right now, Organifi is offering my listeners an amazing deal. Get 15% off your entire order now with code DRLEAF at checkout. Just go to Organifi.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and use the code Dr. Leaf. That's Organifi.com forward slash Dr. Leaf with the code Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Sorry to interrupt you there. I just wanted to, for my audience who's heard me teach on this concept a lot, when you talk about the non-conscious, just so that they understand, subconscious, I talk about the non-conscious and the subconscious being that middle level in the conscious. So they're used to hearing conscious, subconscious, non-conscious. And that with, with a, as you say, practice over time, which is at least cycles of 63 days, because that's what it takes to actually build something that goes into the non-conscious mind and comes up. So I just want to orientate them that you're talking about, I use these, this image of trees as well, which is like thoughts are real things that look like trees so that would be a toxic tree and that would be a healthy tree so when you're talking about the reprogramming of patterns we're talking about finding the toxic ones and reprogramming them or re i talk about reconceptualizing them into the healthy so i'm just doing that for language sake so people understand and can relate to what they've heard me say a lot i want them to understand what you're saying very clearly so they've got that frame of reference Beautiful. So when we have these, it's so funny, I use like a tree analogy as well in a different way. But right. when we have these patterns that are within us, you can think of these things and the way I like to sort of phrase this is our beliefs. We have these beliefs like I am not good enough. I am defective. Mm. I am unsafe. I cannot trust, you know, these core things that imprint. Toxic core things. There's a little toxic. I am not enough. I'm, yeah. <laughs> And so I like to, the, the analogy I like to use, it's separate, but it's still a tree, is that they create these sort of belief imprints. 
and and beliefs at their core create patterns of thought. Like you can think of that as being the tree trunk. Yeah, and that's that's a pattern. pattern. Being the tree branches, exactly. And so if I believe I'm not good enough, I'm going to have a lot of thoughts throughout the day that are like, mm-hmm. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not interesting enough. I'm not good looking enough. And, and they're sort of the extension. And then those things have like an emotional output. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're trying to do, I think, in the most effective way of, of reprogramming is really get the core wounds, the belief patterns at the tree trunk. Or you can think of like a weed that you're plucking because when you can mm-hmm. isolate that and repattern it, yeah, the roots, exactly. Then when you can repattern that, there it impacts your thoughts, emotions, and then neuroscience has proven, I'm sure you know this, Antonio Damasio has proven that every single decision we make is based on our emotions at the tipping point. So if we're not in charge of our belief and thought patterns, then we're not very in charge of our emotions or actions. And obviously these things take place in cycles. That's totally correct with that. that sorry, just to interrupt you there. That's exactly with the research that I've done as well, is that the thought is the big thing. It's tree and it contains all the emotional memories and informational memories and body memories and you've got to pull that whole thing up and you've got to reconceptualize the whole thing into the healthy thought and that's actual structures in your brain so you actually from neuroscience you actually are changing that so those emotions that you're talking about that you refer to demasio those are the emotional memories inside your thoughts so thoughts the big thing the concept and you've got all these emotional informational memories inside and that's what you bet when you talk about reprogramming we're talking about finding these and rewiring them so i'm just using different word the words that i know my audience are familiar with so that people can orientate back yes i love this i love this so much so so what we really focus on when it comes to reprogramming is literally finding those core wounds or or patterns of thought that are stored in there exactly and then literally doing the work to question them and equilibrate them over time because we do a lot of work and like where we emotionally buy into things so for example let's say let's pretend i'm a dismissive avoidant and let's say i believe that i am defective you know somebody might make a comment to me like oh I, i noticed you you know misspelled that that word and I might go oh my gosh I'm defective and that emotion comes mm. up and I see the movie in my mind of how they're going to tell everybody that I'm defective it. Mm. And, <laughs> exactly and then we get into this space where it's really really excruciating and what we don't realize is that we're further hardwiring that in every time we rerun the program mm. and so what's so powerful important and important is to start recognizing that your emotions when you feel bad they're feedback mechanisms to let you know hey this thing has been activated and there, there are guides, there are gifts in, in that sense. They're showing us to ourselves. And so when we feel bad and we can Love identify this. those core wounds, we can question them and then we can look for proof that opposes. And so this is one of the big first steps I share with people is like, if you have a core wound that, you know, we've already talked about which ones go with the attachment style, let's say dismissive avoidant, mm-hmm. I am defective. Can you a hundred percent know that because you misspelled a word, you are defective? You know, is mm-hmm. it, does that make you defective? Because we're so busy investing and buying in that we forget to step out, witness, observe, mm-hmm. and really question these things that we're investing in. Mm-hmm. And and when we can go for pieces of evidence, the the subconscious and unconscious yeah. respond more to evidence to proof. So we get to say, okay, you know, what are reasons I'm effective or I am enough, I am good, you know, anything that is the opposing word that really resonates with us compared to that core wound. And we can say, you know, I've done really well in the whole essay I wrote. It's not just, you know, just because I misspelled a word doesn't make me that way or because I'm a human being and it's natural and normal to make mistakes sometimes. It's a part of the healing, the growing process, you know, and we, when we can start having pieces of evidence that help to elicit emotional responses that are there and that can help sort of collapse that one 
program we're buying into, we get relief. And the more repetitively we do this when these wounds come up, the more we get to actually reprogram those things. Oh, good. So you're reconceptualizing the perspective of how you see it. Instead of saying, oh, I spelt it wrong, I'm defective. You're saying, no, I spelt that wrong. It's just, a be- it's just something I did. But I mean, I'm, I'm a great essay writer or I can do so much. Other, you know. So you're seeing it from you contextualizing and looking at it from another perspective. And then when you talk about that, you whatever you think about the most grows is the way I, I say what you've just said now. And it's I, just, I do a lot of neuroplasticity research as well and the time it takes to form memories. And it's, it takes at least 63 days. So if you are practicing, people think 21 days to build a habit, but that's just a myth. It's actually 63. And people aren't even aware that like, oh, that's nine weeks. So it's around about that time. And sometimes you can be thinking that defective thought, those core wounds, that you could have been thinking those for 30 years before you actually realize how that's. And the good news is you may have thought of it for 30 years, but if you consciously do what you're saying, you actually can change that over a nine-week period. It's not going to change in three weeks. It's not going to change in six. It's only going to start really producing effective change over the nine weeks. So it's a lot of work that involved but you can do that and I think people think that, that these things are hard to change and give up because they don't know the time frame that's involved in the changes I don't know if you find that as well Absolutely. And I think there's like, you know, a couple different places you can hone in on them too, which is like, you yes. can have an activity, like a conscious habit to in the morning and in the evening when you're sub, when you're more suggestible, you can say I am effective or I am enough because, and you can put down like 10 to 15 pieces of evidence and you can do that in a habitual way to sort of simplify it. Or you can also combine that with using your emotions as feedback. And every time we feel bad or off, go, oh, what was I just thinking about that's causing this pain? Mm. And then we can use that to go to really question the stories that we're running. Mm. And so this is a big part of like the reprogramming your attachment style exists within reprogramming these beliefs you have about yourself that are creating this output or dynamic. And then the other huge hugely important part where I think a lot of people miss in their interpersonal relationships is we absolutely have to be able to become aware of our our needs as a human being and communicate those needs to others in, in favor of healthy interdependent relationships functioning. Mm. And a lot of people will do all this internal, internal work on their belief systems or thought patterns, but they're not actually showing who they are. They're not allowing themselves to take up space and be like, Hey, I need connection. I want to talk on the phone once a day or, or twice a week or whatever it might be. And because of that, you know, if you think of how that action actually impacts relationship to self, that would be no different than having a friend following you around or, or a romantic partner following you around going, oh, you have a need. Shh, don't say anything. It's, nobody wants to hear about it. And that would make you feel really unworthy or dismissed. Mm. And so when we are doing that in relationship to self, we're literally diminishing our sense of self. We're going to struggle with boundaries as a result of that. Mm -hmm. We're going to diminish who we are. And one of the next really important components of healing your attachment style very much requires identifying what your needs are of your style and being able to communicate that and bring that into relationships. Mm. And so if it works for you, I'll go through the the major needs that you have. Yes, go ahead, yeah. So, so dismissive avoidance, like we were sort of mentioning briefly, is they, they really want support. They receive support. And here's another part about when we communicate needs, we have to communicate what it looks like. Because I might say to you, hey, I need love and connection. And you might go cook breakfast. And I might be like, what? You're not loving or connecting to me because maybe for me, that was you saying something nice through words, right? So we have different Mm -hmm. ways and like methods that we receive and communicate love through. And so 
we have to really paint that picture for people in order mm, for them. So you got to tell them, I'm cooking breakfast for you because I love you. I'm <laughs> yes, for you. Or, sometimes you have to say that. You know, absolutely. Along. Or you have to say, hey, I need love and connection. And for me, that looks like you telling me that you care about me. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can paint that picture as we communicate the need. That's very good. I don't mean to interrupt you, but a lot of people will say in relationship issues, things like, but they know I love them. So they know that if I go, I keep, I go and do this and I do this and they list all these things, but they haven't actually said it. That person needed for them to say, I know you do all those things, but I'm doing it because I love you. They just needed to kind of make that, you to make that connection for them. And I think don't, it's so many times we think we, we make so many assumptions about what other people are thinking. And then we bring that into our perspective. And if they don't fulfill our perspective, we think think that there's something that we've done wrong or they've done wrong. Then it leads to this whole... And then it triggers those core wounds because we tend to interpret things through that space, through that filter of reality. So we go, oh, it's because I'm defective that they won't give me love. Exactly. And then you build that up and you don't say anything. And then weeks later or months later, this thing's built into a huge thing. So one of the key things that you are saying here and that I will stress and and absolutely support 100%, I say it as well, so much is... Tell people how you're feeling. Obviously, the timing and everything's got to be correct, and it must be, you know, you each got to respect each other's time frame and so on. But it's to say it and, and to be clear, I feel like this because of this, so that you don't build up all these negative assumptions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I give people this sort of framework when they're healing. And it's like, number one, identify your needs. Mm-hmm. And number two, communicate the needs and paint the picture. Don't just say, hey, I need love. So good. And number three, see your needs through. I think another thing we do, is, and this really brings in like the subconscious and, and unconscious mind. We have this idea that because we told somebody once that they should remember, but we have to like pattern in with people who we are and what we need. Takes time. Once is not enough. Yeah. And so if we see somebody never meeting a need and never trying, then that's one thing. But if you see somebody like showing up and meeting it and then forgetting or faltering sometimes, like it's our divine right to remind them, to share, to communicate. And that's really necessary for relationships to thrive. And that's usually good fundamental factor that all insecure attachment styles are missing because when they didn't have their needs met in childhood, they learned, oh, my needs are not safe to express. They're not worthy of being met. And they made meaning out of that, which got stored at a deeper level as well. And and we clean that up by allowing ourselves to communicate and take up space. So uh, basically those three steps of identify your need paint what you need. And then the third one was, what was the third one? Express it identify what you need, communicate it and really paint, paint it out picture, yeah. and then see your needs through. So see your needs through. So yeah, remind, yeah, remind, okay. let people know, don't give it meaning. If somebody forgets, don't go back down the rabbit hole of like, Oh, I am defective. And that's why they didn't meet the need because that's what the mind does. It try it, it projects from worst case right. scenarios based on its own pain points from the past. Mm, absolutely. So those three simple techniques people could go and apply today. I mean, they could take that today because I'm sure just listening to you, they put themselves in whichever category or whatever, and they can start applying that. Identify your need, paint the picture in detail, and then remind. Brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. This has been incredible. So much in- invaluable, excellent information. I don't want to overload people with too much. And I think if, if there's something you want to say to summarize this, I know there's so much more that you've got to share, and I'd love to bring you back for another conversation. But in terms of this, you've said so much in incredible stuff. Would you like to just maybe give an overarching summary of everything in like a couple of sentences and any other pearls of wisdom that that you can give in terms of, you've given so many already, but in terms of attachment styles, just so that it kind of all wraps up nice in a nice summary. Yes. Thank you so much. 
So what I would say is number one, try to identify your attachment style from what we said. Most people have a really clear picture after this, like, oh my gosh, that's me. And and they feel it. And once you've done that, try to recognize which of the core wounds really relates to you because you'll see that they kind of pop up in all these different places. It's not just relationships between loved ones, like romantic ways. It's mm-hmm. exactly. And so try to work on reprogramming those core wounds. And for them to find those core wounds, how would they, is it, they, they know, they, they, they just listen, tune in, they'll find those core wounds. Okay. Yeah. You'll know pretty clearly yeah. like, oh, I do have a fear of abandonment. Oh my gosh, I really do fear being alone. Or, you know, I do fear that I'm not good enough, or I do have a, a core pain point around being unloved or trapped or helpless or not trusting. Like you, you should see very strongly what resonates. And that's how you'll know is you'll feel that it resonates. And so identify those and then do a reprogramming technique, whether it's constantly questioning your stories and finding counteracting pieces of evidence, or even more importantly, doing it in a habitual form. It just simplifies it morning and evening for 10 minutes, sit with yourself and find counteracting evidence, maybe 10 to 15 pieces a day for the 63 days, which is beautiful and powerful. And you'll see that shift majorly. And it's so beautiful. And you can pick like up to two to three core wounds to work on at a time to see that, that result or that impact. And then number two, work on identifying your needs, like sit down. What do I need in in a relationship? What's important to me? You can pick from the the needs we talked about for each of the different insecure attachment styles, and then see what's important to you in in a romantic partnership or any relationship that is meaningful and work on communicating those, painting them really clearly, and then following them up and seeing them through so that you can have those as an integral part of your relationship. Perfect. So identify the, the style, do the core, identify the core need, identify your needs. And then that's done through those, the painting, the picture and, and conveying. Fantastic. This has absolutely been amazing. So thank you so much for sharing that. We, where can people find out more about you and get hold of your courses and so on? Thank you. Yeah. So, so at www.personaldevelopmentschool.com are all the courses, all the information. I have a free YouTube channel where we put tons of free content, talk about all these things. There's an attachment style quiz on our website as well. If you're curious, that gives you like an output and a report about your attachment style as well. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put that, all that information in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and explaining that so, so well. I think so many people have learned so much today, just listening to you and understanding that this is actually it makes it so you know when things have been packaged so in such an organized simple way it's so easy to actually now do something about it but when it's just a whole chaotic mess it, you don't know what to do but this is such a nice way of packaging and so on so thank you so much for your time and your thank you so much i'm honored to be here thank you thank you well, it's been great and i'd love to have a conversation with you again so thank you so much thank you I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful 
Until then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.